The North Carolina Healthcare Association is a proud sponsor of the Do Politics Better podcast. The association is a united voice for hospitals, health systems, and care providers to ensure they can offer high quality, lower cost care to all North Carolinians. Visit nchealthcare.org to learn more about how hospitals and health systems are working to make healthcare easier, more convenient, and with better outcomes. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Wasn't exactly the most exciting week in North Carolina politics. It wasn't, but a couple of things did happen. So last week we recorded on Thursday morning, mm-hmm. question mark. Yeah. And on Thursday there was, you guessed it, a court hearing. Not about legislative maps, but about board appointments. Yeah, so there are a couple of different bills that Governor Cooper is challenging where the legislature took some power from him and redistributed that power. In this particular case, a Superior Court judge on Thursday agreed with a previous panel and did not dismiss the case that Governor Cooper brought against the legislature, and they went ahead and granted that temporary restraining order to block that bill from going into effect. All right, that's a lot. Here's how I see it. The General Assembly passes a law around boards and appointments. They're saying that It's not the governor who gets all these appointments, it's the executive branch. So by allowing the other executive branch heads to make appointments, they're not in violation of the Constitution. The governor's saying, no, this is for me as the governor. And you're saying that the judge seems to be leaning in favor of Governor Cooper here. And there's going to be another hearing this week. Okay. And... It encompasses a lot of different boards. If you recall back months ago, they said some of these are good, a couple of them not so good. Additionally, in court news yesterday, Tuesday, we're recording on Wednesday because we have to travel tomorrow. But on Tuesday, the legislature filed a motion to dismiss in the lawsuit around Senate Bill 747. That is one of the elections bills. So the jumbo jet election. Bill. (laughs) (laughs) So what happens with that? It will be seen. Meanwhile, up in Rockingham County, there has been a candidate challenge and Republicans are saying We don't want Joseph Gibson to run for the North Carolina House and challenge current incumbent Reese Pirtle, who's running for re-election. They don't want a primary between Joseph Gibson and Reese Pirtle. The allegation against Mr. Gibson is that he is a neo-Nazi, he's a felon, and he doesn't have the right to vote or much less be on the ballot. This goes before the state board of election and that local board of election. They're like, look, he's uh, he's paid his debt to society, whether he's a neo-Nazi or not. Notwithstanding that, this guy deserves to be on the ballot because he paid the fee and should sign up and run. Right. 
It's an interesting case because in North Carolina, you have to get your voting rights restored. You have to pay restitution, finish your probation after a felony charge in order to get those voting rights back. However, his felony is not in North Carolina. His felony is in Connecticut. So it wouldn't apply to that. Hmm. I, I do find it to be an interesting case. If they're saying he can't be on because he hasn't had his rights restored and he's like in Connecticut you're automatically restored is there something that they're saying he should do to get his rights restored in North Carolina I have not seen that okay yeah it seems like a big old chicken and egg argument here but bottom line is it looks like Joseph Gibson is going to be on the ballot on March 5th challenging incumbent Reese Pirtle and there seems to be another undercurrent here and that is that mr gibson is very much opposed to casinos yeah and reese pertle is in favor of them so the state board and the local board seems to be in agreement here kind of an extraordinary situation up in rockingham county We've said it before, it is an election year, and President Joe Biden is coming to North Carolina, it was announced this week. President Biden is coming on Thursday, and the announcement said they were coming to the Raleigh-Durham area, so mm. it's unclear if they're just going to stay at the airport, or <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. LT, could you get them to maybe say where they're going? Yeah. By the way, LT McCrimmon is one of the state directors for the Biden campaign, along with Scott Falman uh, over at Nexus Strategies and another guy. I can't think of his name. More candidate. Heavy hitting reporter over there. Yeah. <laughs> can't think of his name. Oh, well, let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> well, yeah, the other guy. Um, Anyway, so looking forward to more presidential candidates visiting. Yeah, we saw the VP in Charlotte last week. You know, I followed the Iowa primaries that concluded on Monday. I was a little jealous that, you know, in this little state of about 200,000 voters, that you could just walk around the corner and see a presidential candidate up on the stump in zero degree temperatures making a speech. It seems like such a fun environment to be in Iowa or New Hampshire. Um, I I love primary season. I saw a tweet that said, we've got to stop making the people of Iowa and New Hampshire feel feel like they're important every four years. Make this madness stop. (laughs) Let's talk about this race of the week. This has been a popular segment since we announced it last week. Thank you to everyone who's been sending us in race information. We're actually going to profile a Senate race this week. Before we do it, let's do our little jingle. Race Race of of the the week. week. That was better than last week. Yeah, definitely. Uh, So we're heading down to Lenore County, Craven County, And Beaufort County, this is Senate District 3. It's the seat that's currently occupied by Senator Jim Perry. He announced on the last day of filing that he was not seeking re-election because of some family reasons. Since then, we have learned that the primary on the Republican side is going to be between former state House legislator Michael Speciale and newcomer Bob Brinson. Both are from Craven County in New Bern. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would think that 
Michael Speciale probably has the name identification in the area. Guy has been on the ballot for quite some time, has run for Congress, did hold the House seat from 2013 to 2020 when he ran unsuccessfully for Congress against Greg Murphy. Greg Murphy beat him in the primary. Uh, this is an interesting race, Sky. Really contrast in more stylistic leadership than it is substantive. I imagine that uh, Michael Speciale and Bob Brinson probably agree a lot on the issues, but stylistically, right, this is where the contrast is. When Speciale was in the House... He was he was definitely more on the Freedom Caucus side, um, along with Representative Kidwell, kind of that sort of temperament. And maybe you could take Freedom Caucus, but on meth, as far as uh, Michael Speciale. I mean, this is a guy on the House floor. He was debating a bill around, I believe it was dogs. And he gave the most explicit and violent example he said, if I kick the dog across the room every day, is that considered daily exercise? Euthanasia performed humanely. Should I choose the axe or the baseball bat? He said this on the House floor. So, yeah, Representative Speciale, not known for getting a lot of legislation passed. I think he got, in his eight years of service, he got one bill passed in the first four years, none in the second four years, not known for really wanting to pass a lot of legislation. He's been described by some of his colleagues on the Republican side as an army of one and doesn't really play ball with the rest of the members. And over on the other side, you have uh, Bob Brinson. What we do know from talking to folks in the Newburn area is that Brinson is a very well-respected uh, person in the community. He serves as an alderman uh, on the Newburn City Council. He's done that, I believe, for the last two years. He's a West Point graduate, 28 years in the military, and seems to really be the candidate that is attracting support from the community uh, and from the business community as well. And he has a website, Bob Brinson Jr. Jr. dot com. Uh, you can learn more about him. But Scott, is there a Democratic race on that side? There is not. So yeah, without a primary on the Democratic side, no candidates on the Democratic side. This is the race to watch, Sky. We certainly will be doing that. I missed this interview with you and Tim Kent, one of our sponsors for the podcast or the beer and wine wholesalers are our sponsor. Um, but I have heard some of his stories and I'm excited to listen. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Timothy Donovan Kent, also known as Tim Kent, Executive Director of the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Welcome to the podcast. Well, it's nice to be here. And uh, I got to say, sort of like back in the old newsroom days, must be a slow news day. <laughs> 
Can you talk to us about what you do in North Carolina politics, what your association does? Okay. Well, for the last 40 years, I've worked in a variety of roles in the legislative building. Started out as a television news reporter, and we can talk more about that. Then I was a legislative staffer for the Speaker of the House. But for the last 35 years, I've managed three different and unique statewide trade associations. First of all, the architects. Second, secondly, the North Carolina Realtors. And for the last 14 years, it's been the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. The best job I've ever had. <laughs> Well, a lot of folks know about the Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association because you actually put on the best event in NC Poll every year, the Growler. Yeah, Rush the Growler. It's, it's been going on now for 31 years, and it's just a big outdoor social event that we have on our property. We usually have between 800 and 900 people, and we serve uh, barbecue, beer, soft drinks, wine, and a lot of laughs. Yeah. So It's a bipartisan event. You see... Legislators from both chambers, both sides of the aisle. Yeah. It, it's something we look forward to. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a lot of work. But hey, it's worth it. And uh, people seem to like it, so we'll keep doing it. When you worked for the architects and the realtors, did you have experience in architecture or realty? Or is it managing the association, representing them in the General Assembly? It, it's managing the association, uh, understanding how to navigate the political and legislative landscape. Uh, the training that I've had as a journalist has been invaluable yeah. because a lot, of, a lot of what you do when you're running a trade association is communication. You're communicating the message to the public. You're communicating with your members. And being able to write and be, being able to deliver a message is sort of the paramount skill. As it pertains to ABC policy, mm -hmm. it's a tough issue down at the General Assembly. It's an issue where oftentimes it's not about partisanship. You see divides here and there. There's the big debate. I get this all the time. I don't know if sure. you do. Are we ever going to privatize the ABC system? Uh, can I, Will I ever be able to get a, a liquor on Sunday? All these questions, and those are issues they grapple with, but it you're maneuvering through all of that representing beer and wine. Yeah, we represent beer and wine, and, and those were the, uh, the, the two products that were initially made available to the public through uh, grocery stores and convenience stores when we came out of Prohibition. 1936 is when the association was formed. But, you know, it was a long, hard slog to, to get beer sales in this state. Right. Uh, you had to do it through local initiative, local option elections. And uh, it really wasn't until uh, the mid-1980s that we had a, a pretty firm landscape from, from the mountains to the coast of counties and cities that really accepted beer and wine sales. Conversely, now, you know, there's a lot of talk about liquor. Uh, mm -hmm. Liquor sales have been up considerably the last seven to eight years. Uh, the system, as we know it, selling through the ABC stores, it, it can be a little bit confusing and awkward to people, especially those who weren't raised in North Carolina. But the system generates about $700 million a year for the state's general fund. Yeah. And, and it's a little hard to sneeze at that kind of uh, money that, that ends up paying the, the, the salaries of teachers, state employees, and helping, uh, helping keep the state afloat. And it also has tentacles into local government as well as far as funding resource. Well, that's right. And there, there are 17 states 
that are what are known as control states, yeah. where where the the state and or local governments manage the liquor business. So we're not totally unique in that respect. Where we are unique is is that we have all of these local boards. And we've got, I think at last count, 173 local ABC boards. We only have 100 counties. Um, and, and it becomes difficult to manage all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably more successful in some municipalities than it is in certain counties, particularly of the rural nature. But it does generate a lot of money, not just for the state government, but for local governments as well. Tell us about your members at the wholesalers. Yeah, we used to have 80 to 90 members uh, probably a couple decades ago. And we're now now to 22 companies uh, that span the state, but it's happened through consolidation. Right. Um, one company buying another, and we just have a shrinking membership. What we have that is very consistent is, is that we have members who are very dedicated to trying to have a positive impact on the regulation of alcohol sales, and they're also very involved in the political process. As, as their executive director, I'm the beneficiary of having a very well-funded political apparatus. The folks that I work for, these are family-owned businesses. They're very generous with their money. They're very involved in politics. They, they support their local candidates. They, they support the leadership of both chambers. And uh, I'm, I am very, very fortunate to work for an organization where I really don't have to beg anybody to participate. They just do it. Yeah. Disclaimer here for our listeners. You'll hear an ad from the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at the end of this interview. Uh, But one of the things that you're down there working on the General Assembly, it's in the ad. You've said it. I've heard you speak in committee. You want to promote, as an association, responsible drinking. Right. It's not in anybody's best interest and not in the best interest of our members for us to be the wild, wild west. Right. Um, alcohol is a highly regulated substance and if it's not handled properly it can cause a lot of problems and we worked very hard since 1936 to develop a a, a system where local governments were able to approve beer and wine sales later able to approve liquor by the drink the last thing we want to do is have a, a bunch of problems which makes people want to go back towards more stringent regulations and laws. Right. Uh, we want to have a system that works for the people, but yet is responsible in terms of promoting responsible behavior. You are not a native North Carolinian. Mm-mm. You're from California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't control where you're born. No, you can't. <laughs> you, you really can't. But you got here, and that's what's important. That's right. Give us your journey from California to North Carolina. My father was part of the greatest generation. He was a um, U.S. Navy officer during World War II. He was stationed out of Long Beach, California. And after the war, he and my mother decided Southern California was a pretty good place to start a business, raise a family. My my dad was an independent insurance agent. My mom um, was a high school English teacher. And we lived in a what was then a small agricultural community about 90 miles due east of Los Angeles. And the 1960s and 70s, Southern California was a great place to live. 
it, it, it was sunshine, orange trees, year-round sports, and in the immortal words of uh, of Spicoli, there were a lot of tasty waves. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a surfer boy, Brian Lewis. I'm uh, yeah. sure you can. Uh, Did you ever paddle appreciate. out? Well, I'll tell you what. I'm, I was never a board surfer, okay. but when you're a six foot two inch high school guy with a skinny body, I'm aerodynamically suited for body surfing. All right. And there's just some incredible beaches in Southern California, and uh, I enjoyed that immensely. When did you leave the state? I went to the University of Southern California okay. and studied journalism. And shortly after graduating, I had an opportunity to become a television news reporter. And I moved to Montana. Now, you talk about a cultural shift. <laughs> M- moving from Southern California to moving to Butte, Montana. And I spent a couple of years there working for the Montana Television Network. I did all the whole shooting match. News, weather, sports, shot my own film it wasn't video it was 35 millimeter film big old cameras oh yeah and uh, learned the business from the ground up and made you know zillions of mistakes but one of the one of the great things about starting out in montana is that there's more sheep there than people so you know not that many people saw or uh, remember your mistakes after montana i I did a a similar stint in albuquerque new mexico okay Um, great place uh, to live, I had a I had a fun time. Worked at a wacky television station, and I'm glad that's in my past. And then in 1981, I moved to North Carolina. Huh. I've been here ever since. I worked at Channel Two in Greensboro for a couple of years. A guy by the name of Jim Hefner lured me to come to work for WRAL, and I finished out my television career at the end of '88. I remember your coverage as a kid. When you were covering Senator Jesse Helms, I believe it was the Helms Hunt race. You were on that beat, correct? I, I, I was on that beat, and it was it was an amazing rush of an experience. This was the uh, at the time the most expensive U.S. Senate race in American history. You had the two-term Democratic governor Jim Hunt running against the the lion of the of the right Jesse Helms, and it, it was the lead story on the news basically for about 18 months and, yeah. and I got to report the story and it was it was fascinating and and you know there were some there were some rocky times because this was a incredibly intense race both sides just fighting trying to pick up that one percent that was going to make the difference yeah it was a brutal campaign and for our young listeners out there it's 1984 uh, this is the re-election campaign also of President Ronald Reagan. He was facing Walter Mondale. I remember Senator Helms was trying to nationalize the race, tie Hunt to Mondale. Uh, you had a lot of allegations. There were ads were ugly. You had some experience with Senator Helms. Yeah. Can, can you want to sure, talk about sure. that? So one of the great things about the job was, was that uh, while I was at REL, I got to go to four national political conventions. One of those was the Republican National Convention in Dallas, 1984. Senator Helms, who most people remember, used to be a commentator for WRAL before he ran for the U.S. Senate. He agreed to uh, be our guest live from the convention floor on uh, the Thursday night of the convention, and I'm doing the interview. I asked him a question 
that went along these lines. I said, Senator, um, you got here to Texas a few days early. Uh, you had a couple of fundraisers in Odessa and Midland, Texas. Did those uh, fundraisers have anything to do with your recent vote against the windfall profits tax? Okay. Now, that was a legitimate question to ask. That's not the problem. The problem was how I asked the question. It, it was sort of a gotcha thing. I see. Okay, you know, I've got you on live television, standing on a platform. You really can't run. Uh, you, you can't object to it too much. And Senator Helms obviously wasn't very happy with the question. Okay. And the, the next day, I'm, I'm in the uh, plaza of the America's Hotel in Dallas. Uh, it's a Republican breakfast. I'm standing there with my television photographer, and next to me is a reporter from the Charlotte Observer by the name of Ken Udy. Oh, <laughs> the Ken Udy the, works for Governor Cooper. Okay. The, the Ken Udy. So <laughs> anyway, Senator Helms walks in with Dot, and um, he looks across from about 50 feet away. He points his finger at me, and he says, you're a jerk. Okay, well, I've been called worse, but, but UD looks at me and says, what's that all about? And I said, well, you'll have to look and see what was on television last night. And so, doggone thing became a headline story the next day in the Charlotte Observer. The confrontation. The confrontation. Wow. Well, it was kind of a one-sided confrontation, but, <laughs> uh, you know, so, um, it, it was challenging, let's yeah. just say that. <laughs> And then all the other news outlets in the state picked it up, and um, it was uncomfortable. No reporter wants to be the subject of the news. Right. Nobody wants to be the subject of the news. But here's the thing, the, the lesson learned. It wasn't what I asked. It was how I asked it. And, and I really admire you, Brian, because you're, you're a very good interviewer, and you, you ask questions in the right way. And I was 29 years old, cocky. And did it in a very inelegant way. I wish I could have a mulligan and do it over and do it the right way, the, the, the way that a polished journalist would do it. Instead, I was just, you know, a little bit too eager and, and a little bit too much gotcha. Did you realize it in the moment as he's pointing to you and he's saying you're a jerk? Did you realize it in the moment? Did this take time to go, yeah, maybe I was being brash? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I, I, I thought about it all the <laughs> night before because it, it just didn't feel right. Okay. And um, I, I had regrets immediately. Senator Helms goes on to win that election. Did you make amends with Senator Helms or did y'all come to... I tried. I, and I tried. And I, I told him I, I, that the same thing, that uh, I didn't handle it properly. I respect you. I hope that we can have a good relationship moving forward. And he said, I appreciate that. So you go on through the late 80s, 1988, mm -hmm. you leave journalism, and yeah. then you go into politics. Yeah. Before we get into your political career, journalism seems to have changed a lot since the 80s. And I'll sure. say, just point this out. I, I remember Charlie Gaddy uh, was the anchor for WREL. Tom Souter on sports, Bob DeBartelabin on weather. They were on our TV screens, and you would see them for years. You would grow up with them. Right. And I feel that is not the case now. I'm seeing 
uh, a lot of turnover in TV mm-hmm. news. Have, have you thought about this at all? Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to be one of these guys who, who's going to say, well, it was a lot better when I was back on the news. <laughs> I'm not going to do that because okay. it, it's a different time. There were three channels back then, okay? Yeah. Cable had just begun in, in the early 1980s and was just barely catching on. So WRAL had a 50-plus share wow. for the 6 o'clock news, which means of all of the television sets that are on, more than 50% of them are on Channel 5. So people watched the 6 p.m. news religiously. That was just part of of the North Carolina lifestyle was, was watching the six o'clock news. And we only had really a six o'clock news and which was an hour and a half hour at 11 o'clock. And there wasn't much else. We didn't have all these 4 p.m. newscasts and four hours of morning coverage. None of that stuff. You had so, Andy Griffith, Gomer Pyle, and WREL News. Right. Andy <laughs> Griffith was the lead-in for the news right. because it was so popular. Yeah. Um, so it, it was different, all right? It, it was different. Uh, newspapers were big back then, okay? Yeah. So we, we competed vigorously uh, against the News and Observer and... We're, we're in a different time, right? And, you know, we, people have 800 channels at home. They've got a lot of choices. Cable news is big. It wasn't even, didn't even really exist then. We were all laughing at CNN. We thought, thought it was ridiculous. Times have changed. And I really feel for a lot of my former brethren um, who may have lost jobs, from, uh, newspapers, and, and some of the problems that have gone through there. But you know, there's a lot of good journalism that's being produced today. Uh, it's just done on a variety of different platforms that didn't exist back then. Things like the Assembly and Axios, yeah. uh, you name it. And, and there's a lot of real good reporting and a lot of good journalists, but nobody opens up the newspaper anymore, right. okay? I, I haven't really looked at all the numbers for local television news, but I, I don't think as many percentage households are watching the six o'clock news as used to. So your transition from journalism to politics, what was a part of your calculation there? I, I was at a time where uh, I had a young family that, that was growing and uh, I, I'd become a little bit uh, complacent in television. I, I will tell you a very quick story about the 1988 uh, Republican convention in New Orleans. Um, I was uh, standing on a parking deck, getting ready to do a live shot for the what was the 12 o'clock news then. Here we are in New Orleans, August, and there's a thunderstorm. And the thunderstorm's over, and now it, the steam is just rising off of the, the parking deck next to the Superdome. And the only thing I can think of is, when is this convention going to be over so I can go home? All right. Now, I call that my light bulb moment because... Covering a political convention as a reporter is like the Super Bowl. And here I am wishing it's all going to be over. That kind of told me that maybe this is uh, time for me to look at something else. And at the, after the 1988 election, there was an earthquake in North Carolina, which I'm happy to tell you about. Okay. And, and some of your listeners may not, yeah. may not be aware of. Uh, 1988 was a horrible election for the Democrats. Mike Dukakis was a, was a weak presidential candidate, especially in the South. Uh, the, the Democrats got swamped. Bob Jordan um, 
didn't run a very good campaign against Jim Morden. Uh, the North Carolina House Democrats lost 10 seats. Now, they still had a 74 to 46 edge in, in the North Carolina House. But there was a lot of disillusionment in, in, um, amongst the House Democrats. There, were, there was a, a group of a couple dozen Democrats who felt that they were being underutilized by then House Speaker Liston Ramsey. Liston had two strong lieutenants, Billy Watkins and, and Martin Nesbitt. They were sort of his enforcers. And if you weren't part of that clique, you, you didn't get good committee chairs. You didn't get to do a lot of things. So after the election, a couple of, of House Democrats, notably Sam Hunt and Dan Devon, started meeting secretly with Governor Morgan. They came up with a plan. And the plan was for 20 Democrats to join forces with 45 of the 46 Republicans and that they would have a majority and be able to overthrow Liston Ramsey and keep him from having a fifth two-year term as House Speaker. And they pulled it off, and Joe Mavretic became the Speaker of the House. The day after Mavretic was elected Speaker, I did an interview for, for Ariel in his office, and um, he, he said, cut off the camera, and he asked the, the photographer to leave, and he asked me if I'd come to work for him as his press secretary. And I, I was kind of flabbergasted. At, at the time. And I thought fast and I said, uh, sir, I tell you what, I really don't want to be a press secretary, but if you want me to be your executive assistant, I'll take care of all the media for you. He says, sold. I went, okay. So that was it. And I, I was uh, essentially his chief of staff for, for two years. And boy, was that an experience. <laughs> <laughs> so you were his chief of staff. You said well, you were it, was a, it was a small. It was a small staff. He, okay. you know, we we didn't yet have those uh, big staffs that we now see in the in the speaker's office and in the mm -hmm. pro tem's office. There were about five of us there, but I, I was his uh, consigliere. I have to ask you about the deal that you just described. Yeah, twenty Democrats joining forces with forty some Republicans to. Mm -hmm bring in a new speaker, overthrow the existing speaker. These are This is basically a Democrats working it out with a Republican right. governor. Mm -hmm. That must have been fascinating well, to, it, to well, see. It, it was. And now, now, let's just talk about the 20 Democrats and who was in that group. There was Walter B. Jones, Jr., who ended up becoming a Republican congressman. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, There was Pryor Gibson, who... A lot of your listeners know in, in a variety of roles, both with Governor Cooper and Governor Purdue. And there was Roy Cooper. He was one of the 20. He was one of the 20. And I, I don't think most people today know that. And the, the amount of rancor from the traditional Democrats at these 20 rebels who dared to, to buck the Democrat speaker and, and do a deal with the Republicans— I mean, it was it was angry and it was mean. Yeah. Uh, there was a group um, of the out the Democrats on, who were on the outs. They called themselves the Kennel Club, and and they did just about everything they could to disrupt the coalition house, and they succeeded. Uh, once the next election season rolled around, I think six or seven of the uh, House Democrat, the twenty Democrats, got primaried and got 
ousted. Yeah. So when that happened, it, it was clear that the coalition was falling apart. But uh, you know, there, some of those guys uh, became pretty pretty important. Sam Hunt ended up being uh, Secretary of Transportation under under Governor Hunt in his third term. Harry Payne became the Commissioner of Labor. Yeah. And uh, you know, Joe Mavretic did uh, two years of service as Speaker of the House. So interesting times. So when I was living through the Black Morgan co-speakership in 2003 for similar deal, Republicans making deals with Democrats to bring in co-speakership, I thought I was seeing something unprecedented. And I had heard about the Mavretic. I didn't know to the extent there was this maneuvering behind the scenes. There were whispers that something was going on, but boy, they kept a lid on it. I, I was not part of the negotiations. I, I only joined joined the speaker's office after he became the speaker. What were caucus meetings like? Did you even caucus? Not much. Um, Dennis Wicker was the uh, House Majority Leader, and he and Mavretic had a pretty icy relationship. And then right next door to to our office was this guy named Dan Blue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, he was very careful during that two-year period. Yeah. Okay? He, he didn't say too many things about the the coalition but he was a loyal democrat at the same time and hey he ended up being speaker of the house yeah. in 1991 and he held it for four years but then you know 1994 harold brubaker became the first republican speaker since uh, reconstruction and the the republicans almost took the senate in the 94 election right, right. The 26 to 24 wow so the state really changed after the 1988 election. A lot of the equation really turned over. Can you give us some insight about a uh, representative, Roy Cooper, from Nash County? I know he's in the coalition, but what's his positioning within this new structure? Uh, he was a second-term House member, as I recall. And, you know, everybody looked at him as being this rising star. I, I, you know, I guess he was a Moorhead scholar and, uh, you know, this, just this Eagle Scout kind of guy. And he, he uh, I believe, was the House Judiciary Chair mm-hmm. that during, during the coalition year. And everybody looked at him as having a very, very bright future. I'm not sure back then everybody would have thought of him as being a future two-term governor, but hey, he is. Yeah. <laughs> How long did you serve on that House staff? I know Mavretic, he's it, it, in and it, out. Just a little bit less than two years, because when, when the uh, 1990 primary season was over, the writing was on the wall. Okay. The coalition was coming to an end. And um, I answered an ad for the American Institute of Architects. And they were looking for an executive director. And I went through the interview process, and it was clear that they wanted to be more engaged politically. And so having somebody on the speaker's staff, I think, was obviously a, a major factor in them wanting me. And you know, I had a couple of friends who managed small associations, and um, I didn't really know what they did, hmm. but it looked like they were happy most of the time. <laughs> So I thought, maybe that's a good thing for me. And uh, boy, I I tell you what, I've spent the last 35 years managing associations and it's been been a blast. Yeah, I've never seen you not smiling. Well, 
there, there are times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There are times. I grip my teeth a lot, so. Let's talk about the 2010 transition. Uh, we had uh, Senator Tom Tillis on the podcast earlier. Um, he talked about that takeover. Mm-hmm. Republicans really, he focused that caucus, got them ready for 2010. They take over. And I mean, so, Tim, I, I've always admired you in the way not only you carry yourself in the General Assembly, the way you talk to all legislators, you are friends with everyone. I want to say bipartisan, but you're almost nonpartisan in your presentation and everything you do, whether it's the growler or speaking in committee or friends with Dan Blue or Mike Woodard or Phil Berger, for that matter. Can you reflect on that a little bit? Because that was a huge transition. Well, at the end of the day, my job is to to represent the members who, who hired me, and it's it is in the best interests of any member organization for their executive to be able to have civil conversations with people of both parties. And look, anybody who was a lobbyist from 1990 to 2010, and I was, we worked in, with Democrat administrations. Now, from 2010 forward, you know, it's, it's all been Republican-led legislatures. I, I, I'm comfortable working both sides. Right. Uh, you know, the, today's Democratic Party is different than, than the Democratic Party of pre-2010. Sometimes it's a little bit challenging because it's, it's not quite the same uh, as it was in, during the, the hunt days. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I enjoy working with all elected officials, and uh, it's, it's been, been a lot of fun. You know, here, here's the interesting thing is, is that my first day with, with the uh, beer wholesalers was November 1, 2010. November 2nd was election day. (laughs) And suffice to say that the state's political atmosphere has never been the same since. Let's talk a little bit about uh, politics in 2024, the races on. How how do you feel about going into the 24 election? I mean, suffice to say, Republicans are going to hold on to the General Assembly. Even Democrats are saying that. Yeah. Uh, the supermajorities are certainly in play. There's a there's a lot going on in the statewide races. Or, or is there anything that you're looking for in 2024? Maybe surprises or where you think it's going? Well, we just got done with the filing season, and it, and it seems to me that the Democrats are going to put a lot of weight and effort into winning as many council of state seats as they possibly can. The way the maps are drawn and and, and the, the the whole whole political landscape, yeah, they're they're not going to win a majority in either chamber, and they they're hoping not to be in a supermajority situation. So, I I think there's going to be a lot of effort and 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 uh, money and time put into trying to elect a, a state treasurer and and an auditor and some of the positions that they haven't held. Uh, recently, and uh, you know the attorney general's race and the governor's races are going to be rock'em sock'em. <laughs> Holy moly! You know, <laughs> so it it should be the most fascinating year ever. Uh, you know what's going to happen at the top of the ticket is um, is Trump going to be the candidate? Right. And the only thing that's going to keep him from being the candidate is going to be you know if he. Is convicted of multiple felonies and 
the public decides to go in another direction. Mm -hmm. uh, at least that's the only thing I can think of. Biden's health continues to be an issue, but I'm assuming Biden and Trump are going to be at the top of the ticket. Mm -hmm. And what, what is that going to mean downstream? What's it going to, how is that going to affect the governor's race, the AG's race? It will have minimal effect on the legislative races. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about polarization. We talked about it a little earlier. It seems like we're just so incredibly divided. You pointed out the Democratic Party has changed. You get on social media, you see just sniping and barking. And, and, and I'm not necessarily talking about the legislators. I'm just talking about somebody's weighing in about whatever issue. And always wanted to ask you this, Tim. You, you have a magic wand. You could fix one thing in our politics. What would you fix? Well, I think you're doing a really good job in getting people to talk to each other. Uh, you know, you you uh, you navigate that quite well. You have Democrats and Republicans, and you alternate each week, it seems, and and you try to get the nexus between the media and politics, and and all that's really valuable. So, kudos to you. Thank you. But here's something that I think happened 15 years ago, 2007 to be precise. Uh, we had Speaker of the House get sent to federal prison for exchanging $40,000 in a IHOP bathroom in Salisbury. And the, the legislature did a knee-jerk reaction. We, we moved from having a, a really unregulated lobbyist industry to one where you can't buy a cup of coffee for a legislator. We, we have swung the pendulum 180 degrees. And, okay, I understand why that happened. Okay, why the pendulum swung? I mean, there were grand jury investigations going on in Raleigh. George Holding was the U.S. attorney, and he was hauling people in there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, down at the legislative building, people were wondering if somebody's wearing a wire. So people stopped talking to each other. They stopped having just regular discourse. And lobbyists were all of a sudden taboo. And... It, it, it has made it very difficult since then to build those kind of relationships, which were matter-of-fact pre-2007. What would I do with the magic wand? I would try to moderate some of the lobbying regulations. I mean, a $25 cap on, on taking somebody out to lunch where you can talk to them and have a, a, a decent conversation. Being able to buy somebody a beer and sit down at a tavern and have a conversation. I think that that would be valuable, but that will never happen. Legislators don't want to reopen that can of worms. They don't want to be under scrutiny from the media. The media would raise holy cane. I would if I were a reporter. Mm -hmm. It's a good news story. So that's just not going to happen. But it was a knee-jerk reaction to what happened in 2007. When I talk to folks about those days where we didn't have regulations on going out to dinner or being able to pick up a tab, uh, a lot of folks don't realize that back then, Republicans and Democrats used to go out to meals together. They'd go out with a lobbyist and weren't necessarily conversations about policy. It was just like, hey, let's go get dinner. Beer and wine can pick up the tab. Uh, you come Democrat, you come Republican, multiple folks together. Right. You, you, you found out about people and their families. Yeah. 
you know, and, and again, I'll go back to your, your podcast. I, I, I listen to it because I find out stuff about legislators that I wouldn't know otherwise, their, their family story, their background. People are people. Okay, everybody's got a story to tell, but if everybody shuts down and they only converse with people of like-minded persuasion, well, we're not going to have much of a conversation, are we? That's right. And it used to be the tradition. I think legislators got a kick out of it. It's nothing like going out for a nice meal one night and then coming in the next day and voting against that lobbyist bill and committing. Well, yeah, and, and it goes back to my original point. You're not buying anybody's vote right. over buying them a cup of coffee, okay? That's not going to get you their vote, but you're going to be able to have a conversation. Yeah. I mean, oftentimes it was a good way to get a good meal is to vote against that lobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> been, been there, done that. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tim Kent, we appreciate everything you're doing in North Carolina politics, your support of this podcast, your representation of the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association down at the General Assembly. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast. Honor and a privilege. Thank you very much. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. Tim Kent, one of my favorite people in NC Poll. Not only does he have so many stories, like the ones he shared in this conversation, but this is a guy who, again, like he said, he goes back to journalism, his adventures in journalism, uh, what he witnessed, what he experienced, what he lived in some of the major moments in the General Assembly's history is surviving all of it. I just admire it. But on a professional level, uh, Tim is someone whose counsel I seek out. I, I try to reach out to him pretty regularly just to check in, get his perspective, get his wisdom, also get his insight. The guy knows what's going on inside the General Assembly. I appreciate his friendship, uh, his support of this podcast, and him being our guest this week. Thank you, Tim. Tweet of the week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from College Basketball Report, and they're at CBK Report on X. It says, insane storylines from NC State versus Wake Forest. The North Carolina State head coach ejected in the first half. DJ Burns left the game early in the second half with a puke bucket. (laughs) Wolfpack faced double-digit deficit at half. DJ Horn double flips off the ref. (laughs) Fight in the final minute with three ejections. Random guy screams terrible repeatedly on live mic. Wolfpack hit zero threes. 
They still won. <laughs> and it has a picture of the double finger. <laughs> when the It's like right after the ref like turns around so he's not facing the kid. The kid gives him the double <laughs> finger. I mean, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah, certainly have. Yeah, but NC State prevailed, right? Yeah. Down at the half and they come back and win it. Down by double digits. Wow. My favorite complaint that you just see from every fan base during college basketball season is like the refs are out to get them you know <laughs> like both teams think I love seeing I've got NC State UNC people on my timeline one thing is for sure the refs are coming for them <laughs> yeah can I say something that might get me in trouble but I believe it at my core okay NC State fans you are the worst victims in sports I have ever witness and I am I pull for NC State I'm from Eastern North Carolina we pull for NC State in Eastern North Carolina I've always been an underdog kind of fan so I'll pull for these guys but sometimes you fans out there there's not a conspiracy against you uh, this is a popular one UNC has a journalism school. That's why the News and Observer is so pro-UNC and anti-NC State. That is absurd. I've never heard that. Oh, my God. Uh, they were out to get Jimmy Valvano, and they were protecting Dean Smith. He was a cheater. Uh, just the refs, yes, the all of it. It's just NC State fans quit complaining. And my son goes to NC State. We pay tuition for this boy to go there and when he left for college i said alan do one thing for me don't be a victim at nc state if you lose you lose if you win you win well alan's not a big sports let's not like he's at every basketball game he's not but he plays ultimate yeah. for nc state and they have a huge rivalry with unc and by the way unc dominates that rivalry but he, he takes the loss. When he says they play UNC, he'll, he'll say, look, they're not bringing their A game against UNC. And, and UNC really owns that rivalry. I love college basketball, though. I mean, I I could watch any teams play. Mm -hmm. I, I love it. Yeah. Much more than football. Really? Oh, yeah. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe it's because we're always a little bit better at basketball. <laughs> oh, the Illinois team is. But I just, it's it's faster, you know? Mm -hmm. Two hours, the game is over. You, it's not such a time commitment. True. Fast-paced game, zone defense, love that. The good thing about losing for Illinois fans is that we always have, like, you have a built-in tweet anytime you're about, you know, you're about to lose. And it's that Illinois is located in Champaign-Urbana, so you can always just say, here comes the pain. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that's when you see it all over my like timeline. I know we're about to, you know, it, we've all just, it's over. Here comes the pain. <laughs> that's funny. All right, so we're heading to Asheville to yeah. hang out with Senator Warren Daniel and Senator Julie Mayfield. Uh, Zach Wallace up at the Asheville Chamber of Commerce has arranged for us to be at UNC Asheville to produce the podcast in front of a live audience. That's going to be a lot of fun. We're traveling Thursday. We're leaving here at nine o'clock because so we got to do some sound checks at UNCA, figure out this whole microphone situation. And, and it does seem like a situation. It does feel like a situation. Yes, we were on the phone with the 
tech guy last week. and Was he the tech guy, though? I don't know. It's all very confusing. <laughs> but I'm excited. This is going to be good. It's going to be cold, I bet. Yeah, it's cold here. Yeah. I'm so mad the whole country has snow. We've got nothing. We talk about... Now there's a conspiracy I could get behind. What's up in North Carolina? I don't know. Oh, my gosh. Did you see all the people that got stuck on Beach Mountain? No. Two days ago, a bunch of people, because it was MLK Day, they had the day off. They went to Beach Mountain. You know, Ventilina at the North Carolina Travel Industry Association was at Beach Mountain this past weekend. Oh. Well, we get them on the phone. On Tuesday. Oh. Was it, or on Monday, sorry. Yesterday. I think was they were Tuesday. coming back on Monday. On Monday, people were there, and you know, there's fabricated snow there, mm. or whatever you call that. Snow that's a lie. Yeah. <laughs> a white lie. Fake snow. <laughs> but actual snow came so that was another 15 inches of snow on top of the fake snow and people just like were not prepared to drive in that down the mountain yeah and so people were stranded on the mountain and i saw like some tiktoks it was just you look down and it was just cars like in embankments and i saw one lady's tiktok i watched she was like usually i would help a neighbor but like this is your problem I'll pray for you. Goodbye. <laughs> We're doing nothing to help people prepare for inclement weather. I don't understand. I, I, I truly do not get that whole thing where, oh, well, we never have it. Like, we have it at least once a year. I mean, it was cold today, and they delayed school. Yeah. Why are we doing that? What? There's no ice anywhere. Yeah, it's cold. Yeah. By the way, I think kids it's, are so soft. It's maybe two degrees warmer at this very moment we're recording than it was at five o'clock this morning. Why are we delaying school? Very and, silly. And the whole assumption that it's warmer in someone's house than it is in school. That's crazy. I remember. So we had a furnace in the house, a wood furnace. And so you throw wood on the wood furnace to heat the house, but we didn't waste wood in the morning. You just white knuckled it through the morning because no one wanted to start a fire in the morning. And so I actually looked forward to getting to school because it was, you know, warm at school. But uh, this assumption that we have to, you know, are we protecting kids from the cold? I don't know what is happening. I mean, what's going on? We're softening up these kids. They're already soft. They really are. They are peanut butter soft. What's up with this? Dude, I don't know. Then they're going to grow up to be whining fans. Yep, you're destined for NC State. (laughs) (laughs) We look forward to seeing some of y'all in Western North Carolina this weekend talking about Western North Carolina politics. We will be back next week to our regularly scheduled programming on Thursday. So we'll have more news for you next week. But until then, stay warm and please remember to do politics better.